Kira Koto Katoa, hello, welcome to this panel discussion hosted by Te Ao Marama, the Centre for Fundamental Inquiry at the University of Auckland, part of the Vice Chancellor's lecture series about life in the universe. Here's how um, Bill Bryson put the origins of life on Earth in that layperson's guide to science, a short history of nearly everything. He says, everything that's ever lived, plant or animal, dates its beginnings from the same primordial twitch. At some point in an unimaginably distant past, about four billion years ago, take or give, about a hundred thou, some little bag of chemicals fidgeted to life. And this one cleaved itself and produced an air. Biologists have called it the big birth. Which all begs the question, though, or questions, actually. Just the one primordial twitch? Prompted by what, exactly? What made that not-alive bag of chemicals suddenly alive, like... Frankenstein's monster, only smaller, obviously. And could it happen or have happened elsewhere in the universe? Whenever I look at the illustrated version of Bill Bryson's A Short History of Nearly Everything, um, I am inexorably drawn to a hugely magnified photograph of eyelash mites in which you can see their little tails emerging from the hair follicles. I wish I could unsee that. <laughs> and I also wish, if I have another wish left, that in the other version of Earth that could be out there, eyelash mites don't exist. I know all life is precious, but on our panel to discuss life, we have Dr. Heather Hendrickson, She's a senior lecturer at Massey University investigating microbial evolution and bacteriophages, being the viruses of bacteria. She watches evolution happen in the lab. Antibiotic resistance is one outcome of that process, I guess, and phages could be an answer to it, phage therapy. Dr. Dan Hikaroa is an Earth system scientist who integrates Mātauranga Māori and science. His projects have included the 2014 State of the Hauraki Gulf Environment Report and Iwi Environmental Management Plans. Professor Cathy Campbell from the School of Environment at the University of Auckland. She's a geologist, a paleocologist, and an astrobiologist, specialising in the interaction of ancient organisms with their environments. Her extreme environment studies have implications for the origin of life on Earth and the question of life on Mars. And Dr. Maria Pazzozano, a researcher at the Astrobiology Center at the National Institute of Aerospace Technology in Spain. She's involved in Mars exploration. Not that she's been there herself, as I understand it, but it's the ExoMars Habit Instrument which will evaluate the habitability of the mission's landing site. Please welcome the panel tonight. Can we just go to the big question first, really? What is life? What makes something alive? I'm going to ask you first because of your phages. They um. don't seem very alive. Um, that's a great question. There are a huge number of different definitions for life. This is one of these um, things that, um, at this point, philosophers have just, just come up with different ways of categorizing all of these different definitions. So um, some of them are terrible. Like? Uh, there was one that I read recently that just started with like, well, it has to have cells. And for life on this planet, certainly, um, we look around and most of the things that we think of as um, alive have cells. But especially for a panel like today's, I think, um, having that kind of restriction isn't going to be very useful. 
So I think one of the really useful, um, especially for looking for life, not just on this planet, but in other places, definitions of life really comes from this um, Carl Sagan definition that NASA kind of put their stamp on about 25 years ago. And um, you guys can help me out here if this is, if I go astray, but it's basically um, life is a chemical system that's self-sustaining and that can undergo Darwinian evolution. Word perfect, I have it written down here. Bam. So um, that word Darwinian evolution, um, and we can talk about what some of those other words mean as well, but Darwinian evolution means um, something that can replicate, that the replication has errors, and that when those errors happen, they are also replicable in that population. And those are really the three, um, the three things that are necessary in order for something to undergo Darwinian evolution. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with Carl Sagan on this one. That's a pretty decent and pretty simple definition of life. What's your take on life, Dan? So I'm gonna draw from uh, one of the bodies of knowledge that I work with a lot, which is Maturanga Māori. And so I trained as a scientist, but I've been privileged to have spent a lot of time with, with some of the tokunga, and I'll say tokunga, uh, some of those really high experts of knowledge that's, I would argue, passed down directly through the centuries. And so these people hold this knowledge. And one of the, the critical things about life is that we differentiate between life for humans and life for all of our more than human relations. And for, for humans, it's whether you have the Modi order in you, whether you have that, that life force within you. So in, in Māori framing, we have a physical part, we have the tinana, and we have the wairua, which is the spiritual. And it's the Modi, which is the force that binds those two things together. And when we die, so I'm kind of answering what life is by talking about what, what death is, uh, when we die, that force is broken and our physical body stays there, and we come and have a tangi, and our spiritual part uh, goes through that path up to te reringa wairua, which is the, this, the common part for, for most Māori, not all. However, life isn't just for humans alone. And so Māori exists in what we call all living things. And Māori is also the ability of soil and water and air to support that life. Right, so we're being reductionist when we say life is, as Carl Sagan said, a self-sustaining chemical system capable of Darwinian evolution. You want to put rocks in there. Well, in, in Māori framing, uh, everything has Modi. So rocks have Modi and trees have Modi and forests have Modi. The Modi can wax and Well, trees and, and forests are alive, right? Absolutely. But, but by Western science standards, rocks are not alive, but you want to throw rocks in there. Yeah, and I suppose one of the great things that I can also draw from, from Mātauranga Māori philosophy is that we're not looking, I'm not trying to negate what, what Heather's saying, I'm saying you have an explanation that makes sense to you and we have an explanation that makes sense for us. And what excites me about uh, sitting around a panel with, with people like this is that what I want to know is how can my way of understanding things also support your way of understanding things and your definition of life support mine? So we're not looking for right and wrong, we're looking for new and interesting ways to determine what, what life is. I should also say very quickly that uh, I don't think Mātauranga Māori has much to offer for, for you two on that side, search for life on, on Mars. However, because Mars was observed in the skies, according to a Māori uh, knowledge, philosophy and cosmology, uh, it was part of uh, the whakapapa of creation but we had no working knowledge for what was going on on that planet. I, I have to say that, that your version of things sounds more people-centric than I suspect any of the other three people on this panel. We're talking about, you know, the very beginnings of life 3.8 million years ago. Does, does Māori have anything to observe about where life began? We do, and that's one of the really great questions I'm hoping to work on and we are working on with this panel is there are many aspects of Māori knowledge which are more or less an explanation for a thing we see. A tanifa is a metaphorical explanation for a dangerous eddy in a river or, or a place that's prone to extreme flooding. So if we can understand that the knowledge is built on observation, Māori have, a very, have very clear understandings about our whakapapa. And so what scientists call Big Bang and the origin of the universe and then life afterwards 
uh, Māori have whakapapa for, and so we see it as a process that is, is ever-evolving, and I think that is completely consistent with, with what uh, my whanau panelists would, would adhere to. Um, Kathy Campbell, you're just back, you've told me, from um, Australia, bearing rock, which contains evidence of life. She said, I said, how old? She said 3.8 billion. We know that life existed 3.8 billion years ago. What's new? What's new is where? Where did it start? Did it start in one place? Did it start in several places and get wiped out by impacts? Because, of course, the solar system was full of debris at the beginning of its uh, history. And so uh, there were many more impacts, impact frustration. Did that stop life or did it help life? And was life then evolving in particularly in very hot environments? So our work in Rotorua and our work in, out in Western Australia is to really question, did life actually take hold in the sea, which is what everybody thinks, or our idea that it actually started on land and went the opposite direction. That in fact you needed to dry it and wet it and dry it and wet it to concentrate those non-living elements into some spark. So it's a like kind of dehydration. a new idea. Like dehydration. And rehydration. And rehydration. Why? To make polymers from monomers to get things going, to kickstart. To put them under pressure to do stuff. To put them under pressure. Oh. Exactly. No, I never knew that. I was going to talk to you about your hydrocarbon seeps and why life would have originated in there, which is one theory, but you're saying not just there. So what's happening is that people have got their favorite ideas. So we're really excited about even going to Mars and looking at old hot springs there for life, because life could have taken hold twice in this solar system. And if so, that is big open questions for if it was out twice even only. further. Well, at least... But the hydrocarbon seeps, which are just springs under the sea full of oil and gas, which I have also worked on and we have in eastern North Island, those have relevance for looking for life on the moons of Saturn and Jupiter. So there, those are covered with ice, but there's methane in those oceans, there's water in those oceans, and I know Maripa will tell you that we are always searching for life by looking for water on other planets. So we have many places on Earth that are extreme, and many people chasing, some people are chasing the moons uh, of the gas giants. Other people are chasing hot springs. Um, Maria Path, the organic material that was found on Mars by NASA, what does that signify? To me, it doesn't signify much because it's not the organics we're working on when, when we work in our labs. It matters to say that when we go to a planet that has no protective atmosphere, that is exposed to radiation for millions of years, you can still find organics, very simple though, that are preserved. I'm presuming that by organic, you mean carbon. Carbon, in that case, mostly in aromatic shape, very basic, we wouldn't like it, but we are not prepared on the Curiosity rover to find more significant organics like DNA or proteins. So the fact that we didn't find them doesn't mean that they are not there. It's just that we don't have the instruments to find them. Do you know, do you have an idea of the best place on Mars to go to that is likely to yield some kind of evidence one way? We both shared an idea. We were very enthusiastic about one place where we you have already been. Yes, Kathy and me. We are in love with one place called Columbia Hills. And the reason, because there are these kind of springs that she was talking about, also because uh, nowadays we know that Mars, in the old days, it used to have liquid water. And as she mentioned before, is one of the conditions for life as we know. So we would really like to go there, not with the instruments that we can bring to the planet, because that is very limited. Pick a sample and bring it back to Earth. Heather, can you see any material linkage between what we've been talking about in terms of the origin of life and what you're working on in your lab? Definitely. <laughs> so my laboratory really has two separate directions, right? So we have this side of the laboratory that studies um, viruses, specifically bacteriophages. So these are the parasites of bacteria. And um, in, by most people's definition of life, a bacteriophage is something that we wouldn't consider to be alive. 
because it's not, it doesn't have that property of being a self-sustaining chemical system. Does so it have DNA? It does. Some of them even have um, RNA, which is another kind of molecule that... Which that may have predated DNA. Possibly. Yeah. That's one of the theories. Because it's simpler. Yeah. Right. Um, so just because this organism or this set of entities, they, um, they have DNA, and they're basically like these little protein shells. They look like kind of diamond shape, and then they have a long pole, and sometimes they have little spindly legs out the bottom. And they're incredibly tiny. So if you took the diameter of um, your hair and you sliced through it, a single bacteriophage would be about one thousandth the width of a human hair. So they're really incredibly small. But they don't have the ability to make copies of themselves without infecting a living cell. So, so they couldn't have come first, right? So, well, yeah. So they, they, they could be related to something that predated cells. Because um, we don't know what came before cells were around, right? There might maybe um, membrane-bound, nuclear acid, nucleic acids, maybe um, sand-based kind of enclosures. We just don't know what it looked like a long time ago. Viruses, we're not going to be able to figure out how they're related to one another um, in any practical sense. So half my lab works on these viruses that are parasites of life, but most people don't consider them to be alive. The other half of my laboratory works on the evolution of bacteria and traits like how did bacteria go from being rod-like to being spherical? How do bacteria evolve from being harmless to being pathogenic? And how our, our newest project that I'm doing with um, Professor Ann Poole is this fun project where we're going to be trying to evolve endosymbionts. So the mitochondria, the powerhouse of the cell, is the example of a very early endosymbiont that um, basically uh, was one of the, the foundational properties of eukaryotic cells, so cells like ours, cells that um, make up most multicellular life. Um, so there are lots of ways that um, we're interested in studying things that are alive on this planet and that are undergoing Darwinian evolution, but also things that aren't considered alive that also go through Darwinian evolution. Things that aren't alive, Viruses. but also go through Darwinian evolution. Yeah. So that Carl Sagan def definition had to be both a chemical self-sustaining system and undergo Darwinian evolution. Bacteriophages are an example, as are all viruses, so the measles virus, uh, HIV. These are things that most people wouldn't classify as living, but do, do go through Darwin Darwinian evolution. So they, they, when they find a way to replicate themselves, they make mistakes when they make replication, and those mistakes are heritable. And that, those are, the, again, the three properties that you need in order for Darwinian evolution to take place. So remind me again, why wouldn't they be alive? Because they have to infect a cell that is alive in order to replicate themselves. But that's parasitism, isn't it? Yes. And parasites are clearly alive. Well, so why it bother? depends on your definition. So they're not, like if I took a virus by itself, it wouldn't be a self-sustaining chemical system. It can't take in energy and use that energy to make lots of copies of itself. So, so when I first got to graduate school, uh, I went to this place called the Pittsburgh Bacteriophage Institute at the University of Pittsburgh. And the professors there would get into these massive rows about whether or not bacteriophages were alive or not alive. Most people think they're not. You can certainly make a case for them depending on how you want to define life. If it's just stuff that has Darwinian evolution, then, then they're alive. I mean, maybe I'm putting words into your mouth here, Dan, but maybe we just shouldn't bother defining anything as alive or not alive. It's all part of the big picture. Is, is that the way you try and see things? Well, I'll, I'll pick a typically Maori answer and say it depends on the kaupapa. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's <laughs> and, it, and it depends, you know, it, it depends what, what is it that you're seeking to clarify? What is it that you're seeking to gain deeper understanding of? If it's determining whether a bacteriophage is going to do this or that, to me it doesn't really matter if it's alive or not. You're trying to determine whether it's doing A, a or B. It matters if you're on Mars. That's right. Or in the middle of Western Australia. <laughs> trying to find evidence of life as far back as you can, right? So, this is so a, you yes. need the definition. So this is, an, this is the idea, and Emily Park in philosophy here in, in our um, university writes about these multiple definitions of life, like biologists kind of don't really need a definition of life. We all kind of know what's alive. I mean, we might fight about bacteriophages here and there, but when you go to another planet and you're actually trying to say what is a biosignature, 
this is where the real fighting happens. This is where people really get upset. And this is where, you know, what does it mean to have those simple orga organic carbon, the carbon, uh, the carbon could be raining down on Mars from outer space. So does that have anything to do with indigenous carbon on Mars being generated? So you uh, see, Well, we'll talk about raining down from outer space. There's yes. a word for it, isn't it? It's panspermism. Panspermia. So Panspermia. Maybe, maybe life just got... You know, like contact, they never figured out where life came from in the movie Contact. It just yeah. came from somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So different groups of people need different scales of definitions. And is, is it a continuum anyway? Maybe it's a continuum. What do you think about panspermia, which is the argument, I think Lord Kelvin came up with this, and also um, Francis Crick and Fred Hoyle, who was a bit nuts anyway, right? But they said... It took too short a time for us to have evolved in all our great complexity. There must have been something that came in from outside. What do we think about that theory? Well, you're just moving the problem to another place. Well, yes. Where but you I don't mean, that's not a bad argument, is it? Right. You look at us and you think, oh, how could that possibly have happened in just 3.8 billion years? You know, something must have, I don't know. It can happen. Life would, is pretty robust. I would have robust. thought so. Why yeah. do they think that it couldn't? Yeah. Why so do it, they think that that time a, is too short? Like a really long time, though. Like if we can just talk about how long things were simple for just a moment, right? Like so, if you spread your arms all the way apart, and that represents four billion years, then life, like as far as we can tell, started around maybe your wrist on one side of your outstretched arms, and that was just microbes, right? The bacteria that are close to my heart, that I love, it was just those dudes. For about two billion plus years, So right? not till you get to around your other shoulder, all the way over here, do you even get cells that look like eukaryotic cells, the kinds of cells that, that um, Kathy and Kim and mushrooms and mice and fungus have, right? So that, it took that long, it took two billion years to get away from just these simple cells that had basically filled up um, all of the different niches. So, you know, really hot places with lots of acid, really cold places, places in the, in, in the middle. And in the meantime, they built the planet that we live on. So they made this oxygen-rich, relatively oxygen-rich planet that we live on. Like, it was the, the bacteria and the archaea that did all of that. And then it wasn't until your, your shoulder that you get into eukaryotic cells. Multi multicellular cells didn't come around until your other wrist. So it was all of that time, you're still dealing with single-celled organisms. And, and humans, which were, you know, obviously quite impressed with ourselves, uh, were supposed to be like the fingernail on the very far side. And so there's just a huge amount of time where very simple cells kind of ruled the planet and built the planet. So I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't know how long it it time it takes, but it, that was a really long time of very simple organisms just completely restructuring everything that we have. Do you think that it was... Um, the I mean, obviously, oxygen was necessary. But as soon as the cells, whatever they were, started producing oxygen, then more complex life became possible. Do you think that it was all climate dictated? That, you know, the weather and the climate changed the conditions radically so that things could happen? I'd say it was the plate tectonics on Earth, which is unique on Earth compared to the rest of the solar system, really helped drive a lot of the changes because for you mean because of the changes they wrought on the climate and the circumstances the the amount uh, the change of the atmosphere and the and the and the clement conditions of the oceans uh, I think would have made the situation at least better by the time the eukaryotes came around things went fast once you got to the other wrist I mean if you look at the history of multicellular life at the far end wrist things went very quickly after that that was half a billion years and suddenly we went from little microbes to, you know, much complexity and consciousness. Everything seems so random, though, doesn't it? In that, you know, things depended on volcanoes and then they depended on, you know, a meteorite 60 million years ago. And if that hadn't happened and that hadn't happened, we wouldn't be here. Is, is, is that the way you see it? Or do you think that it's more, um, a, I don't mean a plan, I don't, I'm not suggesting that there was an intelligent designer, unless any of you wanted. Do you believe in intelligent design, Dan? 
Well, not really, because I dislocated my knee when I was a child, and I think that's pretty poor design. Yeah. <laughs> so that Maybe it was that a skateboard. No. So, yeah, a flippant answer, but it, it's consistent with my belief. Well, possibly. Um, but everything does seem so contingent that it genuinely seems like a miracle that we are yeah. sitting here. Yeah, so, Kim, you can make some statistics for this. You know... There are about at least 4,000 planets we have seen and we have put names to them. And out of those 4,000 planets, only 30 may have liquid water. How many of those 30 have plate tectonics? We don't know. How many of them have a magnetic field that protects them from radiation from their star? I don't know. And so according to a Maori worldview and knowledge system, we have a very clear answer to what is the origin of life, um, and it's the whakapapa. And, and whakapapa, maybe a familiar part, uh, is, a, is like a genealogical sequence of events uh, that's seen as process in a Māori view. Uh, and it's also a way that knowledge was, was classified and shaped and codified so that it made sense. What I get interested in is so much mātauranga I can see is based on observing this, uh, predicting this will happen, seeing it happen, and then codifying it in a way that made sense that you could pass that information on. What I want to start working backward into that whakapapa is how much of this stuff was observed and how much of it is codification consistent with a Māori worldview, i.e., you know, what is real, what is probable, what is impossible, that was uh, scaffolded so that it would make sense to people in ways that they enabled or believed things could happen. All right. So you mean in a, in a metaphorical or allegorical way? I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in, in where that shift, if, if at all that shift is, shifts from being literally seen to metaphorically an explanation. What I'm really interested in is exploring how far back into that whakapapa is the evidential basis for the explanation of the origin of life. And I don't have those answers, but I'm really keen to explore them. Um, in argument, I think, with what Maria Path has just said, and according to Stephen Hawking, there might be many other stars whose planets have life on them, and some of them could have been formed five billion years before Earth. And so... He asked why the galaxy is not crawling with life forms and why haven't we been visited or colonised? Do you think we have? I'm not sure. If I draw from the whakapapa, it would suggest that we haven't because that suggests that you always was and everything came from there. But if I start put looking at my science brain, uh, the, the potential that we have is, is there. To be visited or colonized. Yeah, or that we have been. I'd hope it would happen very soon because the universe is expanding rapidly. Everything is shooting away from everything else. So yeah. this is our big moment. Stephen Hawking said maybe other life didn't evolve intelligence. It's not necessary for life to be intelligent. And so lots of life might be out there, but it might be, you know, really stupid. Like, well, let's be careful. Kim. Sponges. <laughs> It might be sponges. <laughs> or or may, may not want to communicate. Let's think of ourselves. I was once having this discussion. If we had this very sophisticated system to send signals to the universe, but like really powerful, and tell everybody, here we are, I ask an audience, would you do that? And then people thought it seriously, and they started saying, well, no. We did send a calling card at one point, right? Yeah. Solar system, though, right? Yeah. But we, we sent this, like, image of, you know, naked man and naked yeah. lady. Here we are. And here we are. <laughs> this is how to find us. So we sent that out. And Nobody it, called. No. Nobody's called yet, as we know. Assuming that life is, as we're imagining it. Or bearing in mind that there could be 10 billion trillion planets in the universe, so they just haven't got around to us yet. Yeah, perhaps. And the chances of us finding life of any sort, let alone intelligent life, is, is pretty minimal. I mean, what are we doing? We're looking at Mars. And as you pointed out, the chances of us being able to get much further are fairly limited unless somebody finds an unlimited 
source of energy. And intelligence. And intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. You were saying, Kathy? Just the other option is the outer solar system. So there's a really big push now to, for in some groups to get away from Mars and to go somewhere new. And so they'll be sending uh, quadcopters to Titan, mm -hmm. uh, which has got sand dunes of hydrocarbons. Uh, I doubt life, though. But there is liquid Why water. Why do you doubt life? Super cold. And where does it, where, where's the liquid water? We're in a solar system where one rocky planet has life. And we know there is transfer of uh, matter through meteorites and comets and stuff. So if you look from a broader perspective, there is a certain chance, chance that we have transferred material from Earth to Mars, right? Just like we got this meteorite from Mars here. And if that happens, that is like an inner solar system panspermia. So what would happen if you get to Mars and you find some kind of remnant of, of a living cell or living virus ones that left a footprint and is slightly different from us? That could already be astonishing. It would have a lot of implications. Was that life an evolved form from our life? Was it muted and adapted to that environment, or did it appear spontaneously just because every time you have a rocky planet with liquid water, life has a chance How to How would we know? How would we know whether it came from us or whether it had evolved independently? Is that something that could be found out? Life on this planet, um, and even you know, par parasitic things like viruses and stuff like that on this planet, tend to have um, a similar sort of... Um, molecules that they're using in order to encode information. And so for us, I think if we found, I mean, if we found a DNA-based something kind of crawling around someplace else in the solar system, we would still not know if it had evolved on Earth and then taken a ride, or if it had evolved over there and taken a ride. Um, but, but the genetic material being um, DNA or deoxyribonucleic um, acid is, is, is pretty key to life here and even the parasites of life here. One of the things I think that we keep um, banging on about a little bit and maybe not explaining is why water? Yeah, it's a very good question. I thought it had something to do with what Kathy was saying about the rehydration and dehydration business. Is that true? So uh, water is really good, not at being a solvent of everything, um, but it's called the universal solvent because it's a solvent of a lot of things. And this idea of having um, things floating around and coming together and going apart, I think, is, is key to the way that we think about how things like nucleic acids form, things like amino acids form. You have to have something where chemicals can come together and form bonds, and, and dissipate and come together. And, and this like property of being a solvent, I think. I mean, that's, that's what I've, that's my understanding at least. Do you guys have any other? Why water? I, I, well, this you know better, but I would say that every cell inside has a liquid phase that is water-based. So we look at what we know, and we only know life on Earth. And every life form on Earth that has a cellular structure has liquid water. And then you look at the limits of life, and life can tolerate certain temperature limits that are very close to the freezing point of water and the boiling point of water, not far beyond. So that gives you also a hint that has been developed in, in parallel with liquid water, in a parallel way. So we don't have a reason, we just observe that everywhere where there is liquid water, there is life, and on Earth, where you never have liquid water, it's very hard to find life. You really never ever have liquid water, almost certainly you're not going to have life. That's interesting also. So there are parts of Earth where you don't have life. But, you know, even in the dry valleys of Antarctica, which are pretty damn dry... But then, eventually, you have a melting season and you have a slow transition to liquid. And then life flourishes. Besides, we live in a planet that is always communicated through the air we're sending spores to the polar regions and we're receiving them back. So once they get there, if they have a chance to flourish and reproduce, they're going to do it. So when you look at planets and you say, well, that's not much option for life there because it's frozen, it's only got ice water. At some stage in the past, do we know whether it was always ice? Do we know that maybe it was liquid at one stage and therefore life may have started and then gone away. So we find 
remnants of early life. Is that possible? That's the idea behind the Mars exploration for ancient life at Columbia Hills because we're looking for fossil life, fossil hot springs. Everything is now all dried up. Because there is no water at all on Mars now. Ice. For the most part, there are these little linear things that might be trickles in the summertime. But uh, another, this brings a very interesting point that I forgot to mention. There are people, proponents of going to Venus, not to land on Venus where you'd be crushed by the weight and the heat, but the actual clouds of Venus. Because somewhere in the atmosphere of Venus, the temperature is just right, and we mean just right again from our Earth point of view. And so there are huge studies now going on in clouds and atmospheres to try to understand, is what is up there, is it all dead, or is there any kind of life cycle that's going on? And Venus was, when, the, when the, our own sun was young, it was cooler. And so there was a time when Venus would have had liquid water on its surface. So maybe, you know, two billion years ago, Venus could have had life. We don't know. So it is another location, but so those are there are people really interested in clouds and living life in, the, in clouds. the clouds. I would love yeah, that. Yeah. Green clouds, they call it. So we've ruled out advanced civilizations, have we? Looks like it. We're still, you know, scrabbling around trying to find unicellular organisms and getting excited about that. We've ruled out. If we were bidding people, we'd we'd rule that out. Because there was, <laughs> you probably know this better than I do. There was a Cornell professor who worked out an equation suggesting that there could be millions of advanced civilizations in the universe. The bad news, and this ties in with your, you know, we haven't got the energy to get there even if we knew, the closest would be about 200 light years away. So we'd, you know, there's no point in knowing that kind of stuff because we'd never ever get there. Well, there's Alpha Centauri, which isn't so far. It's, it's nearby and it's got, uh, it's got planets. And so Breakthrough Initiatives, which is funded privately, uh, by a Russian billionaire is looking, in, people in fact here are trying to invent a giant sail to send these things by laser to uh, in 40 years or however long it is at two-thirds the speed of light or something to get over there and then what are they going to do when they get there? They're going to take some photos hoping there's some aliens over there. So that's only four light years away. It's not so far. Okay. What makes them think there might be something on Alpha Centauri? The right temperature, you know, the habitable zone, the Goldilocks zone, just not too hot, not too cold. There are planets uh, that look like they might be places where there could be life. So whether we can send probes there, and they want to send thousands of them, hoping that some will get there. And, and there was a movie, right? The, the Last Starfighter had Alpha Centauri in it as well. So. Ah, thanks. Yeah, That's there it. Were, there Sci-fi's green, always ahead of the game. Alien scales. I, I definitely remember that. That was. Is, is this, <laughs> Dan, a, a, a Maori tradition of belief that there are other worlds or other civilizations or other beings elsewhere in okay, those, the observable universe? Those are three different questions. Um, Māori have, have a sense that the world we live in and that we can, the sense-perceived world is one world, but there is also the, the real world which sits beyond that, which is beyond the sense, which is beyond the human comprehension. Uh, I'm not going to get into too much detail on that, but... It's the, beyond your comprehension, Dan. Uh, well, it actually is, and I mean, I teach <laughs> the stuff, and, I, and it's still behind my, beyond my comprehension. And so... So the, the idea that there, there are other worlds, absolutely. Uh, do we have ideas that there are other civilizations and people out there? I'm not so sure of that, but I do know of some, uh, some hapu, or kind of sort of sub-tribal groups. They trace their whakapapa from stars. So I know some trace their one from Sirius. And so you could argue that that's a... Uh, it's not evidence of a civilization it's on that. It's not evidence, no. But there is a, a sense of connection that their whakapapa goes back up to, up to that star. If I had to hazard a guess, uh, I, I, would, I would suggest that the appearance of that star coincided with a really important event at that kind of the birth of that tribal group, and hence the birth of those people is coincident with that astronomical feature uh, featuring prominently in, in the night sky. Okay. And what do the scientists at the table think about this? I'm fascinated. And at the beginning, while you both were defining life in apparently different ways, I thought there, there is something common. 
First, because, for instance, when we define life as the capability to mute and adapt and be selected, that in principle, you could also make a program, right? An informatic program that, that could do that. And, and according to that definition, that system is evolving automatically, randomly. Um, now, the universe, now in the big picture, also has found some laws maybe by mutation, and there is there are, uh, galaxies that are merging, there are planets that are being swallowed or, or contacting another um, object and stars that are being born and dying. So there is a, a way of saying that there is also life in the universe. There, there's things that are taking energy, everything is chemical there also, and things are evolving, and, and there are mutations, and there are solutions that are the best ones for that given moment, although those objects have very large scales. Galaxies are huge, stars are huge, whereas we are talking about small things that have that uh, capability. So maybe there is life at different scales, right? Just back to Earth for a moment. Do we think that life, I was just thinking about Bill Bryson's, you know, one little parcel of, um, of uh, you know, pulsating energy that transformed it from a bag of chemicals into something alive. Do we think that happened in lots of places? Or do you think it happened once and then it spread? So I was... Um reading a paper um, about something related um, earlier this week with my students. Um, one of the things that it talked about was this concept that Carl Rose um, wrote a good deal about called the, the progenote, or like the, the before we even had the last um, universal common ancestor. So the LUCA, right, is a lot, is this thing that people are often talking about. And um, so there are concepts of LUCA where we try to figure out, like, what could this thing have looked like? Um, and the, Carl Woese is the guy that discovered the third domain of life. So there's the, ba the bacteria, the stuff that um, I work on, um, uh, little, little bacteria that, that are little rod-shaped mostly. And then there's us, which are the eukaryotes. And then there's this third domain of life, the archaea. And so if you trace all of those back and you try to figure out, like, well, what was the first thing of these three massive domains of life, um, there, there is a point where we might want to suggest that there was a single little bubbly like cell. Like a singularity. Um, but one of the things that I've studied a lot during my um, life as a, as a scientist or an academic is this um, property of genetic transfer. And so DNA moving between different species. And that's really um, that property of DNA being kind of swapped around between completely different um, organisms. It's hard for me to imagine like there being a single thing not having that access to other organisms, other entities, um, and kind of swapping DNA around. So when I think about um, what might have been, you know, LUCA, and I think of a population of things. Um, and that population could be in slightly different areas and transferring information at slightly different frequencies depending on their, their physical proximity, but I think of a population, I think. Um, and Carl Woese certainly suggested that even before we got to LUCA, we would have this, you know, bubbly membranes all kind of exchanging information. We don't even really have a concept of what that information would be made of. Is it DNA like we all have today as our basic information, or would it be something like RNA, which is chemically different, maybe a little bit more simple. A lot of people like the idea of RNA, but we don't even know if what kind of information might have been passed around. But I think of populations when I think of what was going on. See, even, even if life emerged, as we were referring earlier, Kathy, to your, your black smokers, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people think that it did. How did life get out of those black smokers where they had the energy from the hot water and the certain environment how, how would life have emerged from that? Well, just today, in fact, I was looking at, I've been asked to review a paper that is talking about the transfer of life in bubbles, the gases that are coming out of hot springs and cold springs. They've now found microbes, methanogenic, 
microbes in some of these cold seeps or hydrocarbon seeps clearly then coming up to the atmosphere surface or being transferred along these chains of undersea volcanoes. So, Hang on, I'm confused. You called them cold seeps. Well, there are cold ones and hot ones. They're all springs of different kinds. Oh, are, I thought only the hot ones were useful in terms of Hot life. ones, cold ones. Uh, very cold ones. Very, very cold. But why would very cold ones be useful for promulgating life? Well, because they are also, if life is using the Earth's energy, that's known as chemosynthesis, so chemical energy and like photosynthesis. So a lot of people believe life, because photosynthesis is not what started, that life must have started in some sort of chemical way. And so the idea is in these springs and vents, there's gradients of energy and there's gradients of chemicals. And so there are both cold springs and hot springs. And so extremophiles. Extremophiles. With both then hot and cold. Yes. And in fact, they're even finding them right next to each other, ice and then fire in Antarctica and other places where, and the microbial communities are like night and day today, which means uh, those adaptations could have been going on in different parts of Earth at the same time. And even Mars, perhaps. Mars lost most of its atmosphere, and Maria Pa is sort of an expert on atmospheres of other planets. But, you know, what was going on when Mars had that atmosphere, and do we have any signatures of those things recorded in the rock? So I would say and suggest that perhaps it was going on on Earth, perhaps on Mars, but Mars had to kind of shut off because conditions went from being clement to being very inclement. And so Over what period of time do we think, Maria Pan? I can't recall really the time scales, but the, um, and we don't even know what is the reason why the, the atmosphere was lost, but you remember we said before we need to have plate tectonics, we need to have a magnetic field, the one we used for orientation, right? Um, it looks like Mars did have it, but lost it. So it got too asleep somehow, it lost its activity. And we think when that happened, the uh, solar particles are starting to scratch the atmosphere little by little until it got lost. And that's something you don't want because we need to have, precisely to have life on the surface of the planet, you need to have protection from ultraviolet radiation. So when we were living in the ocean, we were okay. We didn't care about UV. But any bug going about in one of those bubbles would be exposed in the old days, also on Earth, to very high UV levels. So somebody was producing oxygen in tons and changing the atmosphere of our planet, right? And when that happened, the Oxygen was transformed into ozone, and ozone started protecting life on the surface. Uh -uh. So the big burst of oxygen wasn't... I assumed that we needed oxygen so that we could breathe and be complicated, but mainly it's the ozone, much the later. protective. Mm. Yeah. Uh -huh. And why we worry so much down here about this ozone hole problem. Yeah. Yep because obviously it's bad for us. But so, there are, so in bubbles, you could move things around, is what I was saying, really. And these springs, and there would have been a lot of springs, especially hot springs, when Earth was much warmer. There, were a lot, there was a lot of volcanism early in the history, and a lot of impacts coming from space that made the Earth heat up as well. So there was heat, volcanism, gas, and those microbes looks like they were being moved around, or pre-microbes. Pre you would think that extremes of heat and extremes of cold would not be conducive to life, but you're saying quite the opposite. Well, we're taking this from an anthropocentric point of view. Our point of view is that it's too cold in Antarctica, it's too hot in those, in those hydrothermal vents. But for those microbes, the lifestyles of microbes are stunningly fascinating, and there are even some that can live off of radiation, in fact. Um, there's some that do fine when there's radiation around. They're specialized yeah, in they that. they use that as an energy source. That's right. Life is, is very clever, and it takes any chance to survive, even radiation. Let me ask you this, then. I'll make this the last question. If, if we were destroyed by an apocalyptic thing that was even worse than the meteorite that wiped out the dinosaurs, Do you think life would begin to start making itself again? Because there would still be, presumably, cellular organisms. Your bacteriophages would probably still be around. Your bacteria would still be around. Because bacteria are the great survivors, right? Who's us? In that question. Everything. <laughs> so you, do you mean like all of life or, or just people? Except the bacteria. Oh, 
and the eyelash mites. Right. <laughs> no, but I'm assuming that if there was an apocalyptic thing, bacteria would survive, don't you think, in some form? They, they have survived many apocalyptic and, things. And don't you think that that, that would be the seeding of what it comes next? And cockroaches. And cockroaches. And would something come mites. next? <laughs> Do you, can you see... I mean, this is a ridiculous question, really, but I suppose the question is, are we so miraculous that the fact that we have been through so many changes and extraordinary things um, means that it could never happen again? So one of the really fun things, I think, about um, the sort of experiments that are happening in experimental evolution right now is we're trying to answer the question of, is evolution repeatable? Yes. It depends on how, um, how you set up the experiment, right? So like uh, there are experiments, for example, that have been going on for over 30 years in um, a laboratory in, in uh, Michigan, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Richard Lenski's laboratory has been doing the long-term evolution experiment and he set up 10 or so lineages of bacteria in really crappy conditions, but completely separate. Different crappy conditions. Different, no, in exactly the same crappy conditions with exactly the same bacteria in the beginning. And then he let them evolve for like 35 years. And in one of those populations, they found a completely new way of using a carbon source that was in all of those different flasks. But in only one case did the population find their way to being able to use that carbon source. And the carbon source was there as like um, an electron um, acceptor. It was part of the buffer or something like that. So citrate, they learned how to grow on citrate. No other bacteria of that particular flavor in the entire world know how to do this thing that they learned how to do in one of those flasks. So, so that's an example of trying that experiment out. Now, I guess what you're asking is if we started again with bacteria, if we rewound from my fingertips and rewound all the way back to my, um, to my elbow, would we end up with humans again? Yeah. And I think the answer is no. And on that note, please, ladies and gentlemen, um, thank the panel for being here. I've been talking to Dr. Heather Hendrickson and I've been talking to Dr. Dan Hikoroa, Professor Kathy Campbell and Dr. Maria Path Zorzano.